Jesus left that place and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid a hands on a few sick people and cured them. He was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. This is the word of the Lord. All right, if you're coming every Sunday, you know that by the time we get to chapter 6, Mark has already told us that God is present in Jesus of Nazareth, that God's power is at work in this human being in a way never before. Jesus meets people who are emotionally or mentally disturbed and can chase the demons out of them. In a storm on the Sea of Galilee with four fishermen who know this sea well, so frightened that they are afraid they're going to die, he speaks a word and the lake becomes glassy calm. He sees a woman in the streets who's been ill for 12 years, who's spent all her money going to physicians, who's worse off than she was before who dares to reach out and touch his robe, and she's healed, who walks into a house where a 12-year-old little girl has died, reaches out his hand, and in his native Aramaic says to her, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. And she comes to life again. And then he went home. And then he went home can't go home again? Oh, you can go, but you never know what you're going to find. Dr. Robert Gulick says this next verse ought properly to be translated as it was the Sabbath Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. The gospel writers are very clear that when it was Sabbath time, Jesus was in the synagogue. I wish it were true for Christians. When Bishop William Willimon gave our Barton Clinton Gordy series, he said, America changed one Sunday afternoon in 1963 when the movie theater in Greenville, South Carolina decided to open for the first time on Sunday. That was his hometown. It happened in my hometown. It happened in your hometown. And since then, nobody is taking care of your and my Sabbath. Nobody. My brother sent an email 10 days ago, said he and his wife were on their way to San Antonio to see their granddaughter swim in a swim meet. They were excited about this. She's been swimming since she could walk, but she's only seven. They drove more than six hours to San Antonio, more than six hours home again to see her swim. 
You know when the church swim meet was? Sunday morning, 8 o'clock. Last Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. And it didn't take all day. My brother emailed it. Well, we're home again. It was 6 p.m. He didn't. He left at noon. But the best time to have it was Sunday morning. Here in Tulsa, for months we've been hearing about the St. Jude house that they're going to give away. A raffle, pull a ticket out. Everybody who wanted could buy tickets. But they kept saying, we've sold all the tickets now except the last 300. The last 300 we're going to save for raffle day. So all of you need to come. It's next Sunday at 10 a.m. Next Sunday at 10 a.m. Our grandson Josh was playing baseball this spring. And guess what? They got to tournament time and his team was going to play Sunday morning at 10. And Trey and Allison said, well, Josh will not play Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon Josh could play, not Sunday morning. The World War II generation thought Sunday school and church was something people did every Sunday. The next generation decided, we know all there is to know about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and sin and salvation, so twice a month is enough. And the next generation decided, once a month is enough. And the next generation decided, well, we don't need any at all. That's what's happened in lots of other parts of the Christian world. Just isn't needed at all. I went to buy a book recently. And the thing happened to me that happens to you. I went to buy one book. I saw another one I wanted to buy as well. I love books, as many of you love books. And here was a book I didn't have called Craddock Stories. Dr. Fred Craddock, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, he taught at Phillips Theological Seminary when it was in Enid, Oklahoma. He was a disciple. But we Methodists saw a good thing, lured him away to an endowed chair at our School of Theology, Candler, at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and he taught there until he retired. Still living, but he's been retired a number of years now. A couple of his friends and students collected his best stories in a book. He writes a bit being asked to preach in Kiefer, Oklahoma. And when he got through preaching that Sunday night, a man and wife walked up to him and said, uh, you're going to be staying with us. And they drove him to their house. He said, I discovered that this man's job was tending a pump station. I saw one of these pump stations once in Plain Dealing, Louisiana. Haven't seen the one at Kiefer. There was a time back there, 30, 40, and 50 years ago, when one pump station would make several little oil wells pump all at the same time by rods that ran out across the ground. You ever seen one of those? It was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. In this little pump house, there's a big wheel that goes round, and there are a number of different rods attached to it, and they run out to little oil wells. You can be walking through the woods and... There's a metal rod just sliding back and forth on top of the ground. That little pump station's pulling it and pushing it, pulling it and pushing it, pumping oil out of the ground. And it may be pumping four or five at a time. Fred Craddock said, I lay there awake nearly all night. Next morning at breakfast, this woman was so cheery, she was serving us breakfast. said, well, how was your night, Dr. Craddock? And he said, well, I hardly slept at all. She said, what happened? He said, that pump ran all night. And she said, oh, my goodness, we never hear it until it stops. Number two, 
I've always felt that people who write beautiful poems about small towns never lived in one. Little towns can be hateful, mean. Oh, I grew up six miles outside of one of those little towns. You'd be getting your hair cut and some guy in the chair next to you'd say, saw Jimmy the other day. Jimmy? Oh yeah, Jimmy. You remember, he's the one that missed that field goal in 52. <laughs> saw George the other day. George? Which George? You know the one that struck out in the bottom of the ninth in 57. They don't ever forget. Ever. My father grew up in Panola County, Texas, where Carthage is the county seat. He was drafted into World War II. He fought in Patton's Third Army. He was a part of that army that was jogging through knee-deep snow trying to get to Bastogne to relieve the 101st in December 1944. His unit saw heavy fighting along the Ruhr River when finally the day the Germans surrendered, my father's unit had gotten all the way through Munich to Birch's Garden. Because he'd been drafted late into the war, his unit was picked up, sent to the Philippines to join MacArthur's army to get ready to invade Japan. My father came home a decorated veteran of the war. But he was fighting the demons within him with alcohol. Now my little hometown was a dry town. The whole county was a dry county. There were a few bootleggers around, but there was only one place you could legitimately buy alcohol. The American Legion Hall, of course. Who would deny a veteran a drink? Now, the big problem for us was that we lived six miles out on the east side of town, and the American Legion Hall was two miles on the west side. And to get to the American Legion, one had to go around the old county courthouse, which sat right in the middle of the square. All traffic went one way counterclockwise. Years ago, they tore it down, built a new courthouse, but the square's still there. No problem getting to the American Legion. Problems getting home from the American Legion if you're drunk. And so my dad got stopped. He clicked the back end of cars a couple of times. Didn't hurt anybody, but he messed up cars, got stopped, got fined, had to fix the dented cars. And one night it was the county sheriff who stopped him and told him the next night, be ready, he was going to take him to find an answer. And that answer was Alcoholics Anonymous. And my father took that seriously. When I was an adult, young adult done in Texas, I'd call home to see how my mom and dad were doing. My mother always answered the phone, and she would chat, and then once uh, our Allison came along, and then Trey, and then Jason, how the kids, how the kids, and so on. And finally she said, oh, dad says hello. Oh, dad says hello. And then one day, I got a phone call from my dad. I thought my mother must have died. Well, no, he said, I called to tell you the county commissioners have just named me to the board of Panola General Hospital. Wow. Until I was in the sixth grade, my little hometown had no hospital. And then in the sixth grade, all the county voted bond issue, build our own hospital to be administered by the four county commissioners and those whom they would hire. And citizens were chosen to serve on the board. When he said, they named me to the board at the hospital, I thought, who would want that job? I mean, 
if your grandmother's bedpan doesn't get emptied just when you want to, you call a member of the board of the hospital. You know them all well. If you feel the food's not really what it ought to be or some nurse is a little surly, you call members of the board. You know why my dad was so excited? Because after 20 years of sobriety, his hometown had finally seen a person who was capable of making a contribution. I finally had quit talking about the guy who clips the back end of cars going home from the American Legion Hall and saw a citizen who had something to give to his community. These folks in Nazareth, it was a tiny little place. Today it has 70,000 people. In biblical times, scholars believe it had maybe 1,500, about 1,500 people. They thought they knew all about Jesus. We think his father was dead by this time. Who does he think he is? Isn't he Mary's son? Doesn't he have these four brothers we all know? Doesn't he have sisters, meaning at least two? We know him. They took offense at him. And Jesus marveled. It's the only time this word is used of him in Mark's gospel. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Number three. The second part of our reading today may seem strange to you, that suddenly we move from this visit to the hometown to Jesus sending out his disciples two by two. But the first thing he tells them after telling them, you know, don't, don't carry lots of luggage here. You're traveling light, going from village to village, place to place. He says there will be some who will reject you. Just face it, there are some who will reject you. Not everybody will get it. How does he know? Because he's been rejected. His own hometown has rejected him. He wasn't able to do much there, Mark says, because there was no faith. No faith. There will be many to whom you tell this story who will have no faith. Move on. Move on. Keep moving. I read a story the other day, <clears throat> an interview actually in the Wall Street Journal with A.R. Gurney. Um, when I was in seminary, one of the courses I had that meant a lot to me was preaching values in contemporary literature. And we were told that many of us would be appointed right out of seminary to very small communities that had no live theater. So it would be important for us to read great plays if we could not go and see great plays. I read Death of a Salesman before I ever got to see it on stage. I learned to read plays. A.R. Gurney has written a lot of plays. Grew up in Buffalo, New York, Yale graduate, professor, MIT for 26 years. But he always wanted to write and kept writing. Finally had a play and some people agreed to produce it in New York City. His students at MIT had a big cake and everybody toasted his success. After the first night, Clive Barnes wrote a scathing review and the investors closed the play before the curtain was raised the next night. One night, he went back to MIT, ashamed, embarrassed. When he got there, his students had a bigger cake than the one when he left, and they toasted his every success and encouraged him to keep writing. He's now had 42 plays produced in New York, 42 of them. This summer, he turns 80 years old. Says he has at least two more in him. But he was asked, how did you have the courage to try again when the first attempt was so soundly defeated? 
And he said, I believe I had a story to tell. And if I told it well, the way people really talk to each other, the way people really act, maybe somebody in that audience would identify. Maybe somebody would identify and his or her life would be changed. Keep on telling the story. Not everybody will hear it. Not everybody will believe. Keep telling the story. Number four. So they went out. Preaching, proclaiming is the word here. Kerygma. Kerygma, they proclaim. Everybody needs to repent. Everybody. Now you and I use this word repent in English. We often mean to be sorry. It's not what it means in Greek. It's not what it means in Hebrew. In Greek, it's metanoia, which has to do with change. And in Hebrew, the one Jesus would have been more familiar with himself was the word sub, which means to turn or to return. Make a turn. Come back to God. Return to God. Preach, proclaim that everybody needs to make a turn. Come back to God. In Craddock's book, tells a story about a family of four, beautiful Sunday afternoon late, they decided to take a drive in the country. So mom and dad put the two little ones in the back seat, and they drive out of town into the country. And it's fun to say, milk, horses, cows, pigs. And suddenly, one of these little ones says, Daddy, stop, stop. What? There was a kitten back there by the road. Well, we're not taking another kitten. We've got a zoo at our house now. But as he drove on, one says to the other, I thought we had a nice daddy. I thought we had a nice daddy, too. And so he turned the car around and drove back. And there was this bedraggled little kitten standing there beside the road. The man got out, reached out to him. The kitten scratched him. So he reached around and, like a mother cat, pulled him up by that loose skin on the back of his neck, brought him to the car and said, Now don't touch him, he's probably got leprosy. But they took him home and they bathed him and bathed him. Gave him lots of milk and a wonderful place to sleep. A few weeks later, the fellow came home from work sat down in his favorite chair to wait for dinner, opened up his newspaper, and felt something rub against his ankle. Looked down, there was that little kitten, just rubbing up against his leg, reached under his tummy and lifted him up into his lap. Dr. Craddock said, I remember when the hand of God reached out to me. I tell you, it was covered with scratches.